Thank you very much. My name is Carol Sun. I'm a very happy, joyous, and free member of the Al-Anon program. Hi, Carol. I want to thank Shelley and the committee for inviting me here this weekend. My home group is the Sunday night Vincent meeting. We meet Sunday night in Vincent <laughs> at 7 o'clock. And if you're ever in Omaha, Nebraska, please come see us because you'll have a good time. When you mention Cincinnati, Ohio at my home group, you're going to hear Adrian Rich stories. And if there's any members here who... Uh, Knew my friend Adrian, let me know. Okay, I know. <laughs> if you met her, you know her, and she broke a lot of hearts in Nebraska when she died without warning us. But um, her son Kelly is one of my best buddies, and I thought of Kelly this weekend as I listened to your wonderful AA speakers because he has this thing he says to the men he sponsors Is it inconvenient? <laughs> so I think of him a lot when I'm balking at some service work because I know that the blessings I have received from that. I'm very happy to be here. I was, Shelley said she'd follow me anywhere, but she's not going to follow me back to Omaha, Nebraska, to my regret. She's a, she has absolute joy in my life and very special to my family. You hear a lot of talk in these rooms about if you'd made a list when you first got to the program of what it would take to make you happy, what would have been on your list? And I know exactly what would have been on my list. It would have been a very short list, but I'd been planning it for years. <laughs> I wanted him to quit drinking. I wanted him to stop yelling at me and have a happy marriage. And if he lost a little weight, that would be okay, too. <laughs> that was my list of what it would take to make me happy. And I can tell you that 23 years later, to the best of my knowledge, he no longer drinks. He's quite slim, he's happily married, and he has not yelled at me for over 12 years. <laughs> so everything that would have been on that list has come true in my life. And absolutely none of it has anything to do with the reason that I'm happy, joyous, and free today. That is a direct result of things that I learned from Al-Anon and from listening to speakers in both programs and from the help I received from reading our literature and from reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous because I don't know how anybody in Al-Anon can practice Tradition 5 if we don't read some of the stuff that's in there, and I choose to read all of it. I was uh, not that word of a kid. I think my life was, was pretty much okay until I took charge of it. Um, I did that when I was about 12. <laughs> Several things happened that year that were to change the course of my life. One was I was 12. and. Um, I had been very active in church as a child. My friends and I used to walk to Sunday school, and we loved it. We wanted what they had. We wanted the kind of life that they taught us about. It was a good thing for us. But when I was 12, they moved away, and my church did not, or my family did not have a car, and this church had moved way too far away to walk. And so I decided they abandoned me, because if you're a victim, then you don't have to take responsibility. Now, I've done a fourth and fifth step, and I know today that if I really had wanted to get to church, I did know how to use a telephone. But the other things that had happened to me was I saw Rebel Without a Cause, so I know how teenagers acted. <laughs> Dick Clark said on national television that he considered 12-year-old girls teenagers, and so that was enough higher power for me. <laughs> and... When I was 12 years old, I met him. Oh, yeah. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and he had great big muscles, and he had an attitude. He was exciting, and he had a reputation. He was cool, and I knew he needed me. 
he needed my gentle understanding, you know, that Natalie Wood thing that helped James Dean so much. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, he didn't know it. Um, he just thought I was this little kid. Well, I was this little kid, but I didn't think so. And so I set out to uh, become his girlfriend because I knew that if he was my boyfriend, then I would have an identity and I wouldn't have to try so hard because I really thought I was just kind of this generic little kid. I didn't have any personality and um, that nobody would be interested in me. And so if, if I had this cool boyfriend, then I'd be okay. And uh, it took me about two years. I went where he would be and I befriended his friends and I became friends with his girlfriend. And um, I knew before he did when they were going to break up, <laughs> which came in real handy. And uh, I saw my window of opportunity and boy, I, I slid right on through it and I got him. And I was to keep him for a very long time. Now I call that patience. <laughs> In the 90s, they call that stalking. <laughs> so we, we started our very exciting journey. And, um, you know, the sad thing when I look back on my young years is that I wasn't having fun. Uh, I was doing the stuff that I thought teenagers did to have fun. And I saw kids that were having fun. My brother and his friends were having fun but they weren't cool. And one of my problems is that how I look to others is more important to me than how I'm living my life or how I feel. And so I held on to this life that really wasn't that much fun, but boy, it was exciting. And when I was 17, he got me pregnant. <laughs> Well, he said, we have to tell your mom so she'll let us get married. And I said, oh, no, uh-uh. can't tell my mom that I'm pregnant until I can tell my mom that I'm married. So uh, believe it or not, he managed to do that. He had some little criminal friends, and one of them had a dad who was a notary public, and he snuck in his office, and he stamped a permission slip signed by our parents, which, of course, we signed. I wrote my mom's out with my left hand and well my mom's left-handed so it was kind of authentic and um, and we got married and for years I kind of thought well maybe we're not really married and that's kind of my out someday if I ever need it but um, 23 years later I found out they really meant it when they said we were married so um, it wasn't quite that easy but you know we had that baby boy and it was the most incredible thing that had ever happened to either one of us I was 17, he was 19, and we thought, we are going to be the best parents who ever lived. We're not going to make the mistakes our parents made. And just as you heard this weekend, we made way more. But there was something in our lives that we did not understand and we did not recognize. It was called alcoholism. And in 1964, the idea that a 19-year-old young man could be alcoholic was just absurd. He was just um, spoiled, selfish bad, wild. He needed to grow up and um, become mature. And if you didn't believe me, you could ask his father because he would tell you. And so I kept listening to advice from the people that I considered the grown-ups, like his mother and my mother. And Now I'm listening. Um, 
And I tried to do the things they told me. I tried to do the things that my mother-in-law told me would work. And they didn't work. Now, it never, ever occurred to me that maybe this was not good advice. I just thought, okay, that worked for her, and it didn't work for me, so I'm a failure. And I just tried a little harder. And um, through a lot of things that that nameless, invisible enemy that I could not identify, uh, I tried to be a better wife. I tried to be funnier, skinnier, sexier, uh, cook better stuff. And I really listened. I listened to everything that upset him. And then I tried to just make it okay. And then he would change the things that upset him. And it was so hard. To, I just couldn't keep up. But I kept trying. And um, when I was 19, we threw another little baby at that. And, you know, I remember thinking, this time I'm going to hold on to that. Because I remembered how happy and excited we were and all those wonderful promises that we made when that first child was born. And this time, somehow I let that get away. And I actually thought that I could somehow keep it and make it happen. And it didn't work out that way. And here I was with these two little lives, and I was responsible for these little boys. And I really intended to, to raise them like Donna Reed or um, the Brady Bunch. or You know, I really intended to be Donna Reed. And some days I was, but some days I was Joan Crawford. And, you know, I, I was trying, but uh, it just really got, got wild. And... Um, when I got to Al-Anon, they told me that children are affected usually in the home more by the non-alcoholic. I didn't believe them, but boy, when I look back on all of that stuff, I believe that was true. You know, he wasn't even home, but I was. And um, so we continued to, to live that life, and I continued to try to make it better. And I remember one night, for some reason, I knew that I had to find him and bring him home. Now, why that night? But that night I knew this was my mission. I had to get him home. And amazingly, I found him, which was really weird. And even more amazing, he came home with me. Now, I thought I'd won. I've finally won one. I can tell you today, I have never won one. Never in, in that kind of a situation. Today I know that what happened was that when I found him, he was drinking with some people he had just met, and he didn't want me to embarrass him. And that's why he came home. But when we got home, he was mad. And we have a two-story house, and he's going to sleep on the couch. Well, if he sleeps on the couch and I go upstairs to bed, he's going to sneak out. And I know he must stay home this night. He must stay home. You seem to have some knowledge of this, Drewing. <laughs> and so... I ran upstairs, and I grabbed a pillow and blanket, and I ran back downstairs, and I laid down in front of the front door in the entryway. <laughs> so today, when women I sponsor tell me that they're tired of being a doormat, I tell them from experience, if you don't want to be a doormat, you got to get up off the floor. <laughs> I want to thank Sterling. I have not heard him tell his story before, and we just live a few blocks from each other. And this might come as a surprise to some of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have not heard any of Sterling's story because I've attended meetings of Al-Anon with his wife for several years. And I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but at the meetings that I choose to attend, we're not talking about you. Sometimes we have to tell a newcomer, we realize we haven't talked today about how to get the alcoholics sober, but please come back next week. I think that's the topic. <laughs>
So anyway, here I was, and I was just kind of going nuts and not knowing what to do about him because I would be okay if only he would grow up and stop drinking and stop yelling at me. I just don't like that. And when my sons were about four and six, I decided I needed to get them into Sunday school because I wanted them to have what I had had as a child, even though I wasn't going there anymore. I really wanted them to have that background, and I started taking them to church, Sunday school. And one week I went to pick them up, and they wanted to stay for something called church school, which was during the church service. And I said, well, okay, and I had my new little baby daughter in her little car seat thing, and I went in and I sat in the back pew of the church with her in front of me like this, and these nice church ladies came up and said, would you like us to take your baby to the nursery? Oh, no, she won't go to anybody but me. She was two months old. She was sound asleep, but she won't go to anybody but me. And I know today that she was my shield. I was holding her there. She was my protection. You can't get too close. You can't see too much. Because I just knew that everybody in that church had it right. They had a wonderful husband and marriage and a family, and they worshiped together, and it was wonderful. And here I was, sneaking into the back pew, just waiting for my sons to get out of their deal. But as I sat there and I listened to this wonderful minister talk, he was funny and he was honest and he was down to earth. And I I had some of that feeling that I used to get when I was a kid. And I thought, this is great. I want this back in my life. But I had an obsession. And the next thing that my mind did was, this is what he needs. (laughs) This is it. Why didn't I think of this sooner? I'll get God on my side. We'll get him here. And then we'll be okay. It's not as easy as it sounds. But boy, I gave it my best shot. And I got very involved. And I don't want to sound like everything I did there was about that, because much of it really was a sincere desire to have that spirituality and that connection with the God of my understanding. But the overriding thing was my obsession. And I realized today, you know, my children really did become the loves of my life. But obsession was stronger. And I'd like to think that the love was stronger. But I know that things went on in our home and in our lives that would not have gone on. Love would not have allowed. But obsession does. And so I set out to become God's favorite kid. Because apparently I haven't been good enough for God. Or he would have answered my only prayer. I'm only asking for this one little thing. Could it be so tough for God to just make this one person sober for me? And so I tried to get better, and I tried to get better than better. And I learned all the rules, and I read the B-I-B-L-E, and I marked marked all the verses that would help us. (laughs) Aha, here's one on drunkenness, and here's one on lying, and here's one on gluttony. (laughs) Well, we better mark this one on infidelity just in case. And then there there were some about me. I remember my favorite one went something like, Blessed is the man who has a good wife, for she is a treasure indeed. (laughs) Years later, my grown son, um, I shared that with my son, and he went through there, and he said, You know, Mom, you even had it in code. You had X's by Dad and little circles by the ones that I did. (laughs) But I was sincerely trying to get good enough for God. And then... He quit drinking. As Johnny said the other night, he got undrunk. Now, the fact that there were some police officers and a court and a judge and some abuse and some court-ordered AA meetings, that had 
nothing to do with anything. It's not my business how God performs his miracles. It was my miracle that had happened because I had gotten good enough for God. Well, now you got to stay good enough because he'll take it away if you're bad. So undrunk is a tough. I mean, it's stark raving sober is what I've heard it called. And it was. It was tough. And I'm not going to describe it to you because that's not my story. That's his deal. But my part of it was it was tough from where I was looking at it. And I just tried to be sweet and calm and keep smiling and act like everything was fine. And then one day he drank. After about three months, he drank. And I was on the edge anyway. And when he drank, it was over. The God that I had trusted to perform this miracle in our lives gave me a little bit and then yanked it out. God played a practical joke on me. On me. After all I've done for God. And I continued to go to church, and I continued to go to PTA, and I continued to do the things I was doing. I was a little din mother, smiling, but I was nuts. And uh, one night I called my mom, and I was never going to do that, because I had been covering up for since my first child was about two months old, and I decided if I wasn't going to go anywhere, the least I could do is look good. And I'd been covering it up, and it really, you know, people were believing it. They thought it was that much better. And so when I called her hysterical, she didn't know. And she didn't know how to help me. And when I got off the phone from her, I picked up a piece of paper that he brought home from a quarter AA meeting. And they had AA meetings listed on one side. They had Al-Anon meetings listed on the other side. And I remember when he came home from that meeting, I said, what would they say? And he said, they said, you should go to Al-Anon. <laughs> and I was mad because I thought, they're going to blame me. And they don't know how hard I've tried. <laughs> what I didn't realize was that Al-Anon is the only place that knows how hard I tried. And that's why they're the only people who can help me. Our parents, the people in my church, wonderful people. They would have done anything to help me. They just don't know. They don't get it. They still don't get it. But that's okay. So, excuse me. He also told me he thought I would like it because you open with a prayer and you close with a prayer and you meet in church. <laughs> so that Monday morning, I picked up that piece of paper and I looked at those Al Anon meetings and I went and I drove out there and I left myself time to get lost because I always get lost and I didn't get lost. So I had a little extra time and I was sitting in the parking lot and I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't need this. This is silly. He's probably not even an alcoholic. He's too young. He's got a job. He only drinks beer. Um, <laughs> I started to turn the car back on and leave. My next thought was, okay, where do I go? I'll go drive off a cliff. And it was such a calm thought. And I think the calmness of it is what got me out of that car. And maybe it was like we heard today. You know, my choices were go to Allen under drive off a cliff. I can drive off a cliff later if this doesn't work. And so I went into that meeting. Now, I had a preconceived notion, those always do us so much good, <laughs> that what Elanon was going to be was a long, shiny conference table with big oak chairs and smart people. <laughs> smart people scared me. And I would think about all these questions they were going to ask me, and I would try to answer their questions in my head, and pretty soon I would just be a mess because I wouldn't be able to explain because I didn't understand it. Instead, what I found when I walked into that al meeting was a circle of chairs and people who smiled at me and welcomed me, and they asked me my first name, and they said, how are you doing? Well, 
He was sober. <laughs> no. How are you doing? And I thought, you don't understand. There's no me. There is no me. It's about him. So I didn't know how to talk to these people. So maybe I listened. They asked me if I had children, and I said I did. And they asked me if they had been affected by the disease of alcoholism, and I said, oh, no, he never drinks at home. <laughs> and they said, Carol, he has been affected. They have been affected. And I thought, you're wrong. But I didn't argue with them. <laughs> And as I attended those meetings, I began to get a little glimmer. Then I thought it was a whole bunch, but today I know it's just a little glimmer of what was in store for me in recovery. They told me there was hope, and I believed them. They taught me the three C's, that I did not cause it, I could not cure it, and I could not control it. And I was relieved because I really thought I could control it and that it was my job to do something about it. And they taught me it wasn't. And they taught me something very important. They taught me that it, it's okay to sleep. I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought if you're a good wife and a good mother, and your husband and the father of your children is not home, and you went to sleep, something bad might happen. If you're awake, nothing bad's going to happen. And so I stayed awake. And they told me in a way that I could hear. Because if you had said to me, Carol, you need to get some sleep, honey, you're a wreck. So what? But they said to me, your children need you to get some sleep so that you can take care of them. And I heard that. If you come at me through my children, maybe I can hear what you have to say. Now, I came to Alana in September of 1975, and my sponsor and I picked the 19th for my anniversary date. I just dropped my cert, so don't stand too close when you hug me. <laughs> Shelly fed me garlic last night. Um, but there's this little thing. We picked the 19th because she was going to give me a chip, and that was the night our meeting was. But I know that I came actually before September. Did I say December? September 18th. Because in the One Day at a Time book, it says, most of us, when we first come into Al-Anon, have but one idea, sobriety for the alcoholic. We learn at once that this is not Al-Anon's purpose. We have ourselves to change. And, by great good fortune, the changes we make can so improve the environment we live in that the alcoholic will seek sobriety. <laughs> there it was. So it wasn't church, it was Al-Anon. And I did the same thing with what you offered me that I did with what they offered me. They offered me their deal for me. I took it for him. You offered me recovery for me. I took it for him. And for a long time, I just tried to be this good Alan, just like I tried to be Miss Church Lady. Because with great good, what's it say? Good fortune, he would seek sobriety. And somehow along the line, when I wasn't looking, he got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and he quit drinking. He got undrunk again, and he stayed undrunk. And that was supposed to be enough for me. And so I used a lot of what I learned in Al-Anon to stay in that denial that everything's okay. And my reason for my you know, living happily ever after within this marriage is at least he doesn't hit me and it's better than it used to be. And I lived that way for a long time. I was 40 years old when I came home from a concert I had attended with my mother. I attended it with my mother because my husband refused to go because the last time we had gone, I didn't leave when he told me it was time to go and so I was being punished. And I came home later than he thought I should come home and he sent me to my room. <laughs> and I remember walking up the steps with the words he had said 
echoing my, in my ears and something in my mind said, how long are you going to do this? It was about three months later, I think, when I finally got the courage to say, I'm done. And that sounds real simple, but it wasn't real simple because it was the most terrifying, scary time of my entire life. And it took a lot of people who loved me who helped me through that. The sponsor I had at that time is a very wonderful person and a very courageous woman. And there were some threats made against her that were scary enough to me that I was going to stay there. And she said to me, Carol, you do what you need to do to take care of you and I'll take care of me. And I have used her courage many times through the years. When I got a divorce, I felt that I had flunked Al-Anon. And I wanted to be, Sterling was talking this morning, and I thought of this, I wanted to be like some of the couples in this program who managed to stay married through all these years and put it together. But I've had alcoholic speakers release me from that belief when they share with me the difference in being undrunk and having sobriety and recovery in your home. And the funny thing is that I thought I was a big enough deal that my getting a divorce was somehow going to have an adverse effect on Alcoholics Anonymous or Alan. <laughs> my sponsor told me, Carol, you're just not that big a deal. And, um, you know, I really thought I was a big deal because I just couldn't see how this man could possibly stay sober without AA or me. And... Um, Six months after we were divorced, when he remarried, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not that big a deal. And that, that was kind of a, a relief. I've learned a lot of things from then until now. That was about 12 years ago. And um, so I've had about half of my life, um, half of my Ellen on life since then. And I've learned more since then than I learned in the 40 years up to that point because I began to look so much more at what this program is about. And I found some new meetings that uh, are, are truly happy, joyous, and free meetings. If you come to my home group, you might be surprised, first, by the fact that there are about 60 people there in regular attendance every single week, and that maybe a third, some nights, are men. And uh, there are many meetings and many members of my home group who uh, the members of Alcoholics Anonymous frequently say that they think they're about a six-pack away from their program. And that's not because they drink. It's because they have fun, and they're naughty, and they're bad, and they're rowdy, and they're irreverent. And, and you know, you don't own it. It can happen in Al-Anon, too. It's just that some people don't want that kind of Al-Anon. And, um, you know, if you want quiet, sad, pitiful little Al-Anon meetings, you can find them anywhere. Um, I can tell you where they are in Omaha, but I won't be going to them with you. Sorry. <laughs> I learned during that time how much wisdom I could gain from listening to my children. My son, who was pretty young at that time, came through one day when I was going through that deal, and he said, Mom, what's the matter with you? You're always so bummed lately. And I said, I just don't know that I'm making the right decision. You know, that, you know, what about college for Michelle, and what about this? And he said, you know, Mom, this is, this is really not your business. Um, if we need to go to college, we'll go to college. And I said, but... Do you think that God would really expect a 40-year-old woman to live by a decision made by a 17-year-old girl? And he went, Mom, that is just a bunch of BS. The only decision you have to live by today is the decision that you make today. And he walked out of the room. And I thought, has he been talking to my sponsor? (laughs) There are men of few words. 
he looked at me and he said, you know, Mom, you always let your head scare your heart. And then he walked out of the room. <laughs> but I took a lot of wisdom from my sons. I've learned the kind of people that are here in this program to support and love and carry me when needed. There was an article in the forum called Hell in the Hallway. And the idea behind it was that we say God never closes one door without opening another one, but sometimes it's hell in the hallway. You know, we've all been in that hallway. But I've also learned not to look back at the things in my life that have hurt me and distressed me, but to look back instead at the people who've helped me through. And oh my God, the people that have been there for me. I've been married for nine years to my friend, my buddy. Um, I did not plan on falling in love, believe me. And if I did, I had a list. <laughs> I learned from that first one, I had a list. And you know what? Dee wasn't on that list. And I'm very grateful that I had turned my life and well over to the care of God when I married him or when I fell in love with him because I wouldn't have picked him and God does a much better job of picking than I do. Because for nine years I've had a friend in recovery and a spouse who has a sponsor. Whew. We've decided if we ever have a sitcom we're going to call it Married with Sponsors. <laughs> and send thank you cards on our anniversary to our sponsors. But things have happened in those nine years that have strengthened our commitment to one another and to this program. You know, getting out of self, you've heard a lot about it this weekend. And I hear it in my head, it's always three times, because that's how I heard it from an AA speaker. Out of self, out of self, out of self. And we have learned that in the years that we've been together. Sometimes when you're going through life happy, joyous, and free, just living this life, things blindside us. And we got blindsided by some stuff a while back that was pretty devastating. I remember thinking at the time that I didn't think it was possible to have that much pain without someone dying. And then someone died. And um, then my granddaughter was born, and she was a perfectly healthy, beautiful nine-pound nine baby. And the next day she was in the neonatal intensive care unit having seizures, and no one knew why. And we were scheduled to go out of town to do some service work. And I thought, I can't go. I can't leave my grandbaby in the intensive care unit and go do this. And they'll understand. And it was a strange thing in my mind because I knew I couldn't go, but I knew I was going. And I did this really remarkable thing. I called my sponsor and I told her about it. And she said, um, you know, what's the problem? You can still go. You're not the doctor. You're not the parents. And I said, I've never even held her. I've held all of my grandchildren within minutes after their birth, and I've never held April. She said, well, go to the hospital and tell me you want to hold her. You can do that? And she said, well, yeah, you're her grandmother. And so I got off work. I went to the hospital, and I got scrubbed and gowned, and I went in. April was wide awake, and they took her out of her little incubator, and they had a prior out. She was a big baby. And I held her, and I sat in a rocking chair for about 45 minutes, and she was wide awake. I think she just thought, what's going on? Who is this person? And I told her that I was her grandma and that I loved her and I told her about her mommy and her daddy and her cousins and I took her around the room and I introduced her to her little roommates and all their little incubators and told her all about our family and no I didn't tell her all about our family <laughs> a little bit about her and then we went and did our service commitment and you know what I learned from that 
was that, well, I knew about talking to sponsors. And then you go out of town and you talk to some people around the tables and around the coffee and you go in and you got people in other states praying for you and caring about you and caring about a baby named April that they may never meet. You know, five years later, I still have people come up and ask me how April is doing and April's doing just great. April um, is happy. April can't talk and April will never walk. But she can clap her hands and she can sing and she can smile. And I told Shelly the other day, out of my eight grandchildren, she may be the only one that ever reaches her full potential. And that's just okay, because we just love her a lot. So we had our, our hell in the hallway. And during that time, one night we were in so much pain over a situation that had happened that was totally out of our control, that actually had nothing to do with us, but it sure felt like it did. And we called our friends Bill and Tina, and we said, can you meet us for a hamburger and a Coke? And they said, sure. When and where? And 20 minutes later, we sat down with them, and we discussed the situation that was ripping us apart. And Bill, who is an outstanding member of Alcoholics Anonymous, looked across the table at me, and he said, Carol, this is not about you. And he looked at Dee, and he said, Dee, this is not about you. It feels like it's about you, but it's not. And he encouraged us to believe that something good would come out of that situation. Well, now I want to know what. <laughs> World peace is probably not going to come out of this situation, and I can't think of anything else that would make it worthwhile. And what I realized was that I didn't need to know what it was. If I believe something good will come out of a situation, then I can get back to, I trust you, God, I trust you, God, I trust you, God. And I can let it go, and I can live with it. Sometime later, completely by accident, because they certainly did not tell us, we found out that when we called Valentina, they were getting ready to go to a very important, fancy, formal event for his company. And they didn't say, oh, sorry, we got to get ready and go to this thing, call someone else, or can we talk tomorrow? They said where and when, and they showed up. And that's the kind of love and support that I have as an example of what Ellen is about. And I have those sponsors who show up, and I have those friends. If you're moving, you would not believe. Sterling knows a move <laughs> is amazing. I always think, why don't I take a video camera? People would not believe. We have like these Chinese fire drill things going up. You know, you have the, the truck in the parking lot and you have so many people helping that you don't even have to carry a box. You just hand it up the steps and into an apartment. And there's the kitchen people and the dining room and everything gets put away. It's incredible. And we have the people that are there for us, middle of the night, whatever, to help walk us through those things. And then what happens? is because we've seen them and what happens to them when they get out of self and we see the happy, joyous, and free lives, then we're able to do that too. And I was able two years ago to begin a journey that was a privilege, and that was the journey through the death of my sister-in-law, a woman that we and our family loved so much. And I told God when I found out that Carol was going to die, that it was not acceptable to me. And I knew that I could tell the God of my understanding that, and I knew it was okay. And he knew that I would accept it, because I didn't have a choice but to accept it. But I watched my husband take care of his sister. He took leave from absence, and he spent his time with her, and he gave her her shots. And we loved her, and we laughed with her, and we held each other, and we cried in each other's arms. And my husband's two daughters, who became my daughters nine years ago, sobbed in my arms. And our daughter, Missy, said, Mom, I have never seen this family cry so much. And I never saw you cry before. And I said, isn't this good? Isn't it wonderful that we can support each other and love each other and cry together and let go of her and just love her? And today what I'm able to do is pass on so many things we learned about going through that with a family member, with my own sponsor. 
because she's facing it with her mom. And so we just learn to give from the people who give. And we learn how to get out of self and how to love. I've learned so much from the women I sponsor. I have one woman who recently was discussing how we're always talking about God's will. And we always think there's this one thing that's God's will. And if you miss it, you've missed God's will. And she said, you know what I think? I think there's a whole bunch of good stuff. And it's God's will. And I get to make a choice. What I have to remember is there are some things that I know for certain are not God's will. And if I don't do those things, then my choices are going to be okay. And I had never thought of it like that before. I sponsor another young woman who just didn't want any part of the God deal. And I said to her one day, you know, I wouldn't want any part of your God either. Your God is really kind of a jerk. He's mean and he's vicious and he's spiteful and he plays weird games. Why don't you borrow my God for a while? Now, I know a lot of people do that, but I've never known anybody who took it quite as literally as this little girl. So she would say, um, Carol's father who art in heaven. <laughs> Carol's God, grant me the serenity. She got down on her knees and fired her God and said, Carol's God, I really hope you can take me on because I think I really need you in my life. <laughs> And she's come to learn by doing that. You know, whatever it takes, okay. She's come to learn that our God, not Carol's God, our God, is really an awesome God. And I've seen marriages put back together, and I've got to tell you about our friend Connie, who came to me as a newcomer, and the only thing she was not going to do was stay married to him. She would stand on her head, naked in an intersection. In fact, she'd probably enjoy it. She would do anything that I told her to do, but just don't ask me to stay married to him. There's no way. I said, okay, so let's not talk about him at all. Let's talk about you. Let's look at these steps. And you know what? We need somebody to lead the meeting Friday night. And so we started doing some Al-Anon stuff and started talking recovery. And just to make the story as short as possible, the result of that was two years later, my husband and I were invited to be in the delivery room when she and her husband had their baby. This little baby that was never going to happen. And her husband, when he could finally let go of that little baby, turned to me and he handed her to me and he said, here, Carol, you take her. You're part of this miracle. I get to be part of a miracle. And it's not about me. It's between them and their program, his sponsor, her program and their willingness to work this program, but I get to be part of it because I said yes. One of my heroes in the program is Peggy Martin, and I love it when she talks about saying yes. Will you be my sponsor? Yes. <laughs> Will you make the coffee? Yes. <laughs> and so I've learned to say yes, and I'm so grateful for that. God, I believe Help me with my unbelief. I know what I believe today. I sure can't explain it. There are so many things in God's world that happen that are wonderful and exciting and fun, and I can't explain why they happen to me. I just believe that if I keep doing this deal to the best of my ability, good things will happen. One of my best friends in the entire world lives one house away from me. I get to see her every day. And we have fun together and we shop together. And we play with her baby Jacob. And her baby Jacob is my grandson. Because she's my daughter. And she's my friend. 
and she has supported me in every imagine. I don't know. God gave me a much better daughter than I deserved. If if life was fair, this would not have been the daughter that I would have gotten. That would have been the daughter my mother would have gotten. My mother deserved that kind of daughter. My mother got me, although she likes me quite a bit. But I've learned about forgiveness, and I've learned about forgiveness in a couple ways that stand out in my mind. One is when my son said to me, Mom, I'm really tired of you being bitter about my dad. And my first thought was, why is he talking to me like that? I'm the good one. (laughs) But it was true. I thought I was being funny. I was being sarcastic. It was kind of funny, but it was sarcasm. And I learned about forgiveness from an an, uh, AA speaker named Mildred. She's an ex-nun from Canada, and I hope if you ever get a chance to hear her, you'll go. But I was listening to her at a conference in Ames, Iowa, and I had gone there with an old resentment and an old hatred that all the steps in the world hadn't helped me get rid of. It was about a young man who was married to my friend. When our children were very, very small, my friend and I took our children swimming, and my two, two little boys got severe sunburns. They were super sensitive to the sun, and I didn't know it. And I beat myself up about that more than I can tell you. I was devastated. The only thing I really thought I could ever do in this world was be a good mom, and I failed. My children were hurt, and it was my fault, and there was no way it wasn't my fault. I couldn't blame anyone else. And this young man said something really awful to me because he was a sick young man, and I hated him. And all those years later, when I went to that conference, I still did. It just so happened that the night before Mildred talked, I ran into a girl I hadn't seen since high school. And the first thing she asked me was, do you remember and said his name, and I said, oh, yes, I remember him. <laughs> and I told my husband about that situation, and he said, well, Carol, have you asked God to help you see him as he does? And I said, yes. God doesn't like him either. <laughs> <laughs> and that Sunday morning, when Mildred was sharing, and she talked about forgiveness, and she said in the quiet of this room and the peace of this fellowship, is there someone you need to forgive? Well, he was on my mind because I just happened to run into that person the night before. And I bowed my head and I said, yes, God. And I said that man's name. And it was gone, just like that. What I didn't realize then that I know now is that I couldn't forgive him because I was afraid to. Because I had transferred all my self-hatred onto him. And if I forgave him, maybe it would come back instead what I was able to do was forgive the young mother that made a mistake, as I would forgive any other young mother, but not me, because I'm not allowed to make mistakes, especially if my children are hurt. I don't know why a Baptist Al-Anon from Omaha, Nebraska, travels to Ames, Iowa, to learn about forgiveness from an alcoholic ex from Canada. <laughs> I think it makes God smile. <laughs> If we could read the secret history of those we wish to punish, we would wish no more on them. And I will never know the secret history of any other human being, even those people who share their fist up with me. I will never really know. I was at my son's apartment a few months ago taking care of April, and the phone rang, and it was his father. And he called to talk, and I was the one there, so he talked. And he, he, he doesn't have all the baggage I do. You know, he's just okay. 
And so he was talking to me. And he said, you know, there's something in my life I'm never going to forgive myself for. And he said, do you remember the night? And he described a night where there was a scene between him and our son Steve that was devastating to all of us. It was a horrible scene. I remember that he turned to me when it was over and he said, you think I'm wrong, don't you? And I said, no, I think you're crazy. And it was really, and I knew that I was never going to forgive him for that because he messed with my kid. And you don't mess with my kids. (laughs) Don't mess with my kids. And I didn't plan on forgiving him for it. I didn't see any reason why I should. But I've been busy in Al-Anon. You know, I've been doing the deal you tell me to do. I sponsor people. I answer that phone. I set up chairs. And I make my meetings. I regard my meetings as too important to be missed, and I've been busy. And so he said to me, remember that night that that happened with me and Steve? And I said, "Mm mm-hmm. He said, I'm never going to forgive him. And my first thought was, I hope you do. And I thought, when did that happen? I didn't know I'd forgiven him. And when I can look at him today and hope that he has the best life possible and honestly, truly hope that he and his wife live happily ever after, I know that I have forgiven him. And it's God at work in my life doing what I cannot do for myself. I do things today that it is humanly impossible for me to do on my own. As a mother, it is humanly impossible for me to see absolute unspeakable pain in my son's eyes because of a situation he was going through and then turn around and go out and have my date because I have a date night with my husband and be in the room and not carry my six-foot-two son on my shoulders with me and in my heart to share with my husband and to talk with him and not think about what's going on with my son because I'm trusting God with his children. God doesn't have grandchildren. And so I can trust him with my son and I can go ahead and I can live my life. But there are things that happen in situations like that that I can't explain and I won't try. But when my son was going through that very painful time, his time in the hallway, which thank God he's out of today and he has a happy life today. Today. Well, anyway, yesterday I haven't talked to him today. He has a good life today. And we didn't think he'd make it. But I went to bed one night and I was so tired. Oh, I was so tired. And I went to sleep immediately, which is very unusual because this does not shut off for a long time. Went to sleep immediately. And about 11 o'clock, I woke up and I was awake. This doesn't happen either. No caffeine, no alarm clock. I was wide awake. And I didn't want to eat and I didn't want to watch TV. And my husband was snoring beside me. You know, I I got up. I went downstairs and I'm sitting in the chair thinking, I'm awake. What is this? What's going on here? And my son walked in. So he was staying with us. And he sat down and he started talking. And he talked and he talked and he talked. He talked about what was going on. He talked about how it hurt. And I didn't try to fix him. I listened because that's what you've taught me to do. And after he had talked for maybe two hours, he said to me, Mom, I can't tell you what it means to me that you were awake tonight. Because on the way home, I said, Oh, God, if I can't find someone to talk to soon, I'm going to lose my mind. He said, My friends either want to fix me or quote Bible verse to me or something. He said, I just needed somebody to just listen. Thank you, Eleanor. 
for teaching me how to just listen. I made amends to my other son because he's my middle child. And I felt that of all my children, he'd always gotten a short in the stick because he's just a good guy. And he would ask for something and we'd say, we'll see. Well, I had an obsession. I didn't see. I didn't see anything but my obsession. And unlike his sister and brother who would come back and nag and complain until they got what they wanted, he'd let it go. And so there were a lot of things that Steve should have had in his life that he didn't get. And one of them was a mother's full attention. And I went to make amends to him for that. And he said, oh, Mom, I don't even know what you're talking about. You were a great mom. Now, granted, I'm really into myself right now, so it's possible that I'm just not seeing some things about you. And so if they come up, I'll be sure and tell you. <laughs> but as of right now, Mom, I think you were pretty cool. And I thought, how can this be? And then he was at my house visiting, and we were in the guest room, and his little daughter Esther was bouncing around on the bed in there, and he picked her up and he set her in his lap. And he gave me a gift that I never would have received if I hadn't been willing to make that amends that I didn't want to make. So I didn't want to admit I thought I'd been a lousy mother to him. And he said to her, you know, Esther, when Daddy was a little boy, this was his bedroom, and Grandma Carol was my mom. And one night I had a really bad earache. And my mom came in and she held me all night. And she massaged my head and she talked to me and she prayed for me. I don't remember that. I don't remember anything like it, but I know it happened. Because I was willing to make an amends and because my son told me it happened. And I know that I received that gift just because I said, okay, I'll do these steps. They're not going to work, but I'll do them. And all those things that I wrote about in my four-step that I thought, why am I writing about this? this? These people weren't important. Huh. Huh. Maybe that's a clue. Maybe I needed to look at the fact that in my life I used people. And that that person that I used to blame for ruining my life really didn't want me in the first place. <laughs> so the difference in God's will and my will today it's pretty easy for me to accept that I need to, to pray for knowledge of God's will because my best thinking got me to the place where my choice was Al-Anon or driving off a cliff. And for a long time in Al-Anon, when I heard people talk about how this disease had driven them to the point where they were suicidal, I would think, oh, thank God I never got to the point where I was suicidal. And it never occurred to me until, I don't know, just recently, driving off a cliff is kind of considered suicide. <laughs> I love Al-Anon. I love the people in Al-Anon. I love my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous who share with me and make me laugh and who support me. And I thank you for the chance to be here and share so little with you. There's so little that I can really say to express what I've gotten from this program. What I'd like to be able to do is just magically give you two seconds of how I felt when I got here and then follow that with two seconds of how I feel today. But you'd die. So. <laughs> so I have to rely on very inadequate words to tell you that um, I just thank God for you, and I thank you for God. Thank you.